We're in Hebrews, but here's my problem today, is that Neil's coming next week and I gave him the rest of the text. And I don't want to steal what he is preparing to do. So then I thought I would just preach on the word Hebrews. Because what's a Hebrew? Anybody know what a Hebrew is? title of a pretty important book in our Bible. Well, Hebrew in the Old Testament is a label that the world gives to Abraham because he's an outsider. But as the story evolves, because of course Abraham has a son who has a son who has 12 sons, and this becomes then the family of Hebrews, only one of those 12 sons continues on as a people, as a family, as a nation. And so by the time you get to the New Testament, for 700 years, a Hebrew is a Jew. A Jew simply is a slang word, if you didn't know that. A Jew is a Judahite. A descendant of one of these 12 sons of Jacob. So, let's go to the story of Judah, the father of the Jews, the father of the Hebrews, of which the latter part of Hebrews 11 is all about. When it talks about they were sawed in two, and they were stoned, and they uh, wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins, and they, who the world was not worthy of, Those are descendants of this person, Judah. Judah. So with that being said, Genesis 38. I'm going to warn you. This is a racy text. It's rated R, but it's in our Bibles. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Found on page 32 if you have a Bible like mine. I'll start with verse 10. What Judah's son did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah, my third son, grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. Kind of like he went to Vegas in our day. And his friend Hira, the Adalamite, went with him. When Tamar was told that your father is on his way to Vegas to shear sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. For in other words, uh, her father-in-law, Judah, had no intention to get her married. When Judah then saw her, he thought, She was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. 
Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. Well, what pledge should I give you? Well, just give me your wallet, she answered. So he gave her his wallet and slept with her. And she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil, put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adalamite, in order to get his wallet back. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is this shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been a shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, well, let her keep my wallet for I will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result is now pregnant. Judah said, and literally it's two words, take, burn. Take her and burn her. And, she was being, and as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and staff and cord, whose wallet this is. Judah recognized it and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb, and she was, as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But then he drew back his hand and his brother came out. And she said, So this is how you have broken out. And so he was named Breakout. Perez is what breakout means. And then his brother, who had the scarlet thread in his wrist, came out. And he was named Seed, Zerah. That is God's word. You can be seated. I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> if you didn't just wander off uh, and you listen to that actual story, it's a total mess. Death, deception, injustice, oppression, hatred, manipulation, prostitution, maybe even some incest. This is humanity at its worst. What you also might not know is, is, is just where Genesis 38 is. It, it's just plugged right into uh, the middle of the Joseph story. And you have this great show going on, the, 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 the Joseph thing, and then all of a sudden this commercial break to talk about Judah. And it's almost, as I'm reading it, it almost feels almost too shameful to read. It's messy. But listen, mess is our world. Mess is our nation. Mess is our city. Mess is our neighborhoods. Mess is the schools we go to. Mess is the workplace. Mess is right here. Right here. Mess. 
Now what's cool is that at the end of today's text, a son is born out of this mess, and his name is, is Perez. Perez, as I already mentioned, is breakthrough. Because that's exactly what our world needs. That's what our families need. It's what our marriages need. It's what our nation needs. It's what our cities and schools and marketplace needs. It's, it's what what we need. We need breakthrough. We need for God to break in. And here's the awesome thing. That's what God promises. I'll start with Tamar. Tamar gets married to Judah's, Judah's oldest son. We didn't, we didn't read those first verses. And what the Bible tells us about, about Judah's, Judah's oldest son is that he's incredibly wicked and cruel, and he dies. In fact, the Bible says that God judges him for his, his wickedness and cruelty and, and, and takes him out. Because girls married at a very young age, Tamar is probably about 13 or 14 at this, this time in her life, and she's a widow. Now, in our world, being a widow is an extremely difficult thing. And I, I, I hope I'm stating the obvious. I hope we all understand what a challenge it is for a person to be a widow in our world today. In that world, it was even more so. Because a woman's power and her protection were completely derived from her husband. And her worth as a person was completely derived from her, from her children. And so to be husbandless and to be childless for a woman made a woman to be essentially worthless, powerless, and incredibly vulnerable. Because of all this, there were customs in the ancient world that, that are already going on by the time that... Uh, of which our story occurs. Um, one such law and custom is that the widow would come under the care and the protection of the father-in-law. It was his legal responsibility to care for that widow. It was his job. It was his role to restore her, her, her worth and her dignity. And, and one of the specific ways or, or pieces to this custom, in fact, it's spelled out also in God's word in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. It says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow was, must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to her. So if, if Judah has other sons, which he does, it's the responsibility of the next oldest son to marry Tamar primarily so Tamar can have children. And in thus doing, Tamar is protected, cared for. She gets her value back. So that's what happens in verse 8. Uh, Judah gives Tamar to his second son, Onan. The Bible says that Onan is also wicked. Uh, he's wicked in part because of what's described in verse 9. Um, he essentially wants sex with Tamar, but he doesn't want to have kids. 
So he practices an ancient form of birth control, which violates the whole purpose of this brother-in-law taking Tamar to be his wife, which is to have kids and to give Tamar her worth and her value. So what does God do? He takes out Onan. Tamar is once again a widow. Now she's left to wait for Judah's third son, who's not of marriageable age. She's probably still in her mid-teens. And look at verse 11. I want you to see this verse because it gives us a lot of insight into what Judah is thinking. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shalak grows up. That's what he tells her. But this is what he's actually thinking. Oh no. If Shalak marries her, this girl is, is bad news. I've had two sons who've died as a result of her. There's no way She's getting my third son. So basically, he says, go back to your father. We're not going to call you. or you, you, you don't have to call us. We'll call you. But Judah has no intentions to ever do anything about this. Tamar is trapped. Her life is at a dead end. So what she does is she takes justice into her own hands, and yes, her her plan that she devises, I don't even know what to call it. I mean, it's bold. It's aggressive. There's a brilliance to it. Um, Because in utter desperation, she dresses up like a prostitute, stands at a street corner, prostitutes herself to her father-in-law, Disguised as a prostitute. And she's willing to have these kind of relations with a man who she probably utterly despises. Now, I want you to consider something in this text. In a text where God is quick to take people out for evil, God is silent on Tamar's actions. Silent. And as Jesus would say, he would say, now go learn what this means. And I'll tell you what, what, what I think it means because at the end of the story, even Judah is going to say about Tamar, Tamar is more righteous than I. And this word for righteousness in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word tzedek or tzedakah. Anytime you see the, the, the word righteous, it's, it's this Hebrew word. Sadak is one part compassion and it's another part justice. And when you put these two things together, compassion and justice or compassionate justice, what you have is the Hebrew word for righteousness. And so righteousness is When the one who has all the resources reaches out to the one who doesn't have resources. It's the powerful helping the powerless. It's the one with privilege helping the underprivileged. That's Sadak, and that's at the heart of biblical righteousness. 
I'll give you a great example. I don't know if you read this week. The founder of Shobani Yogurt just donated all his money to the Syrian refugee crisis. $750 million. I hope he's a believer. See, in our text, the question at hand is this. On whose side is Sadek? On whose side is justice? And at the end of the story, Judah, like a judge, is going to say, Tamar is Sadek. Justice is on her side. Meaning. The big sin here is not the sin of prostitution. And I'm going to have to fall in your head right now because I'm wondering right now, is anyone going to walk out of this room? We know what a sin prostitution is. We know what a sin, sexual sin is. Uh, Not just in our eyes, but the eyes of God. It is serious. But listen to Hosea 4 verse 14. Sorry about that. I did not mark this. And now I'm really feeling panicky because where is Hosea in the Old Testament? (laughs) Does anybody want to read it? (laughs) Hosea 4 verse 14. I love this. Sherry, stand up and read God's word. Did you hear what God just said? I will not punish your daughters for prostitution. I will not punish your wives for the sin of of becoming shrine prostitutes. But the men! The men! In other words, God is putting this on the men. And guys, I want us to own this this morning. When we see sexual sin in our culture, that's on us. We don't point the finger at, at, at the ladies. What are your eyes looking at? What is your mind thinking about? Men, let's own this one. And any judgment that God wants to throw at it, God, throw it at us. And when I read this this Genesis 38, the, the, the big sin in this text is verse 26. Judas says, she is more righteous than I. He doesn't stop there since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. In other words, I did not take care of the widow. Judah deprived this widow her right, the justice due her, and only Judah could give it to her. Judah refused, and this is a really big deal to God. This is God's heart. I mean, I could take you to verse after verse, like 
Psalm 68, verse 5, where it says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Psalm 146. The Lord watches over the alien. Thank you, God. Watch over him. Protect him. He sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Because this is righteousness. God has a compassionate heart. God wants to use his resources on behalf of those who don't have resources. I love that we're a church that's putting our feet in the water in terms of pursuing righteousness. A lot of compassionate justice is, is, is expressed because every society has their Tamars. Every society has the powerless, the marginalized. In, in that world, it's the widow, it's the orphan, it's the alien. In many ways, it's the same today. I'll, I also add this, the unborn, the unborn. How are we using our strength? How are we using our resources? How are we using our privilege to help those who don't have it? Let's keep stepping into this as a people. So if Tamar is a powerless widow seeking justice, then who is Judah? Well, most of us know that Judah is one of Jacob's 12 sons. He's the great-grandson to Abraham. He's born into this special family that God is pouring himself into, through whom God is eventually going to parrot himself. God's going to break into this family, and he's going to break out of this family to redeem the whole world. But what I want us to see is, is, is Judah, and Judah at this point in his life, because at this point in his life, he's a complete failure. And his failure isn't so much just sexual that he's shacking up with prostitutes because in the previous chapter, if you know, Judah also fails as a brother. He cold-heartedly sells his brother into slavery. That would be Joseph. Then he fails as a son because he not only pawns off his brother, but then he bold-faced lies to his dad and says, Dad, this is what really happened. And he can go on living life then, harboring this deceit in his heart. And now we see in this chapter how much Judah fails as a father. Not only are his sons wicked, but he deprives his wicked daughter-in-law the very justice that's due to her. But to me, the most disappointing quality in Judah is not so much his failures, because every one of us is going to fail. But it's his ability to disguise his failure by blaming others Namely, a vulnerable widow. And when you get into verse 11, which I already pointed out, I mean that just is a window into Judah's heart because what you see in Judah is a man who's in denial. He's literally blaming Tamar for the death of his sons because Judah doesn't want to admit that his sons might have been really wicked, messed up people. 
Judah doesn't want to admit the mess of a father that he has become. Instead, what Judah does is he projects all of his shortcomings and failures and sins onto a very vulnerable position. She's the problem. She's the evil one. She's the one who's responsible for bringing evil to my family. You ever hear the term short man's disease? It's Judah. I don't care how big, strong, fat, skinny you are as a man. When a man has no capacity to take responsibility for who he is and what he has become and how his life and actions have uh, impacted and hurt and wounded the lives of others and he projects all his failures onto other people, that's short man's disease. Furthermore, I want you to see this in Judah. He lives by a double standard. Because in verse 24, when he finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, he says, take her and burn her. But yet he can be a guy who can have sex with, with anyone he wants, whenever he wants. But yet Tamar must remain a childless widow. And honestly, if you think this prostitution was a one-time thing for Judah, then tell me how Tamar could come up with such a plan as this. I mean, her whole plan depends on the fact that when she propositions, or when she puts herself out there like a prostitute, that her father-in-law is going to proposition her. She knows this man. She knows his lifestyle. This is Judah. He's a coward, living in denial, can't man up, when he finds, Tam- finds out Tamar then is pregnant, says, take her, burn her. Do you know that in that day, hardly anyone ever got the punishment by burning? Because burning in that world is seen as torturous. So Judah isn't just saying, hey, take her and kill her. He's saying, take her, torture her. Why is he saying this? Because he, his whole life, has had to demonize Tamar in order to justify himself. And now he has this moment where he can say, see I knew it. I knew she was the problem. I knew she was the reason for all the evil that's come upon me, that's come upon my sons, that's come upon my family. And it's almost like Judah probably loves it because it confirms that he is right, that Tamar is wrong, that Tamar is bad. Take that little whore. Burner. You guys, this is Judah. This is a man who's born into God's family. This is a family that knows 99.9 more about God than the rest of those walking the earth. Grandson to Abraham. 
But do you see what he has become? The adultery, the blame shifting, the hatred, this desire for murder. What's behind all of this? Don't you dare pick up a stone and throw it at Judah right now. Because what Judah has in his hearts, we all have in our hearts. Every single human heart needs to justify itself. We need to shield our hearts from from the shame that comes through failure. And so oftentimes what we do is, is, is we disguise ourselves by shifting this blame onto other people. In fact, if you know the book of Genesis, disguise becomes one of the major themes. Jacob will disguise himself as Esau to get his dad's love. Leah is going to disguise herself as Rachel to get marital love. Tamar, in our story today, disguises herself as a prostitute to get her worth. Judah disguises himself by blaming everyone else for his failures. And what we should learn by this is why people do this this game of disguise. Disguise is done for, for the reason of this is how I get love. This is how I get approval. This is how I get my worth. And this all goes back to the garden. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hid. Why are they hiding? Because in that moment, they're being crushed by their shame, by their failure, by not measuring up, which causes them to do the very thing that in the end is going to hurt them. They, they hide and, and then they blame and they dress up and they disguise themselves. And when we do these kind of things, when we hide, when we blame, when we disguise, when we dress up, All it does is empower the stronghold that shame and failure already have in our lives. And it keeps us from experiencing God and his freeing grace. And so what Judah needs is Peretz. He needs God to break in and transform his heart and life. I don't care what family he belongs to. I don't care that he has Abraham as his his great-grandpa and Isaac as his grandpa and Jacob as his dad. Judah needs to be born again. He needs awakening. He needs spiritual awakening to take place in his life. And, and for spiritual awakening to happen in a heart like Judah's, Judas must first wake up to who Judah is. He needs to be exposed He needs to wake up to the fact that he is every bit as sinful as he sees Tamar. And Judah, like all of us, needs help in this. Because I think this might be the most difficult thing to do in life. Is to have our hearts exposed. For the disguise to come off. And not just for people to see who we really are, but for our own eyes to see who we really are. And really, for this to happen in a person's life, for Judah, Judah must go down. 
Same with Joseph. You read the Joseph story. How, how does this happen in Joseph's life? Joseph has to go down. He has to go down into pits and into prisons to be resurrected. And, and Judah too has to go down because this is the way it is with God. The way up is down. The, the way to experience God's strength is through weakness. The way God remakes us is he first has to wreck us. And look at verse 1 of chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down. And see, God is going to use the hard times and he's going to use the disappointments and he's going to use those painful circumstances and and sometimes he's even going to use our sin, sin of the worst kind, to wake us up. How ironic is that the vehicle of God's grace is Tamar herself. It's going to be through Tamar that God's grace is going to Peretz and And break all in and out of Judah's life. Look at verses 24 and 25. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, to Judah. She said, I'm pregnant by the man who owns this wallet. See if you recognize it. Wow. Can you imagine Judah? A man hands him his wallet only to hear him saying, this is from Tamar. And she said she's impregnant by the man who owns this. And Judah, she end with these words, Hakar nah. Hakarna in Hebrew means to see. It means more than to see something externally. It means to discern something, to see through. Judah, can you see not just your wallet, but can Judah see Judah? Please, Hakarna. These words, hakarnah, are the very same words that in Genesis 37, Judas says to his father after they sell Joseph in slavery. They keep that coat and they dip it in blood and they come back with this, this concoction of a story and say, this is what happened to your brother. See the blood. And they end with hakarnah. Do you see, dad? Do you recognize this coat? And now Tamar is taking those same words and using them against Judah. Judah, do you see who you are? Do you see what you're capable of doing all in the name of justifying yourself? You're willing to take a widow and kill her. Judah in this moment has a choice. With his heart being exposed, he takes off the disguise. 
It's verse 26, it says, Judah recognized them. It's, it, it's the first sign that Judah is waking up, that his heart is being transformed. Because for the first time, Judah is acknowledging who he really is. And instead of blaming Tabar, he says, she is more righteous than I. Or another uh, more literal translation, she's righteous, not I. I failed. I sinned. Justice, righteousness is on her side. And see, this is the first step to waking up. Have you woken up? I'll tell you, when you read the rest of of, of Genesis and... You, you just highlight Judah. You can see what a changed man he is. I mean, his life is, 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 is radically different. For instance, uh, they have to go down into Egypt to get food because of famine. And there they see Joseph disguised, not knowing that Joseph is their brother who they sold into slavery. And Joseph starts playing his own games with the brothers. And finally, Joseph says, the only way I'm going to give you food is if, you keep, if I can keep this one. Because Joseph knows that that brother is his blood brother and that that is daddy's favorite. And Judah has already, like a good son, promised his dad, nothing will happen to Benjamin. I don't care if you favor him above me, I'll take care of him. And then Joseph picks that a little bit more and says, I'm keeping him. And in that scene where Judah just falls on his knees before Joseph, not knowing it's his brother, and pleads with him and says, no, this will kill my dad. Take me. Take me. And here's Judah going from a a, a man who's so quick to offer up his daughter-in-law to death to justify himself is now laying his life down for the sake of others. He's changed. Have you woken up to who you are? Because I think coming to this truth can be one of the scariest, most unsettling things there is. It takes guts. It takes courage. But I'll tell you why we can do it. It's not because we have to be so good. It's because he's so good. In fact, when you think about Tamar, when, when, when Judah declared Tamar to be righteous, all of a sudden, Peretz occurred in her life, and God broke out, and she got her life back. Yet, all of this is done in spite of her sin. Yet, Judah now covers her, protects her, when he says, she's righteous. And what Tamar is doing there is she's pointing us to what we all need. We all need someone to declare us to be righteous. And not just anyone, but we need a truly righteous one who knows righteousness, who lives righteousness, who can look at us and say, Rod, you're righteous. And I'll tell you, when Judah declares this about Tamar, what he's doing is he's pointing us to the ultimate Judah through whom the ultimate breakthrough is going to come. The ultimate descendant of Judah is Jesus. Jesus is a Judahite. 
And what we all stand in desperate need of is for the ultimate descendant of Judah, Christ, to look at us in spite of all our sin and to declare us to be righteous. And you know that's what Jesus does? He came to the world to do that. And you know how Jesus does it? It's so the opposite of what Judah does because Judah in our story wanted to place the punishment for all his sin onto Tamar. But the ultimate Judah, Christ, wants to take the whole punishment for all sin and place it on himself. He went to the stake for us. He bore our sin, all of it. He took our punishment. He lived the life that we are supposed to live. He died the death that we deserve to die. This is why God can right now look at us and he can look at you and he can say, you're righteous. Because Jesus lived the perfect life and he exchanged all that he is for all that you are. He exchanges his perfection for your failures. He exchanges his righteousness for your sin. He exchanges his strength for your weakness. This is the gospel. Which screams two things at me when I really know it. First, that I'm more sinful than I could ever imagine myself to be. I am. I'm Judah. I was Judah. And yet I'm more loved than I could ever imagine myself to be. God knows me to the bottom of who I am, yet he just loves me to the skies. And see, most people never come to neither realization. They spend their whole life in this bondage to this game of pretend. They're constantly disguising themselves to, to, to pretend that they're more than they really are. They're always having to keep up this facade. They're running, they're hiding, they're, they're, they're blaming, trying to justify who they are and what they are. Listen, you're a sinner. Just relax, at ease. Because God loves you. He loves you. And see, when we really know this, we're free. No longer now do we need to be better than other people, which causes us to be so critical and judgmental. No longer do we need to justify ourselves because Jesus has already justified us. No longer do we have to blame. No longer do we have to be right because we're covered, we're protected. Jesus is our rightness. No longer do we need to disguise ourselves. We don't have to be like Adam hiding in the bushes because we're now hidden in him, clothed in his righteousness. And now we're free to love him with everything we have and to live for him with everything we got without the fear of failure. One of my favorite texts now in the whole Bible is the first three verses of our New Testament. Oh, <laughs> stunning. How the part of the Bible that we know so well, how it begins. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob 
was the father of Judah. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Do you understand the sinless one came from Judah? And if that's not enough, hey, let's throw this little clause in here too as well. We can't forget this important detail. Whose mother was Tamar. Out of this mess, out of this family, comes the righteous one. And Jesus loves his family. Hebrews 2 verse 11 says he's not afraid to call you brother. Look at Judah's legacy. Jesus is a Judahite. The disciples are Judahites. The end of Hebrews 11, some faced jeers and floggings, chains, imprisonments. They were put to death by stoning, sawed in two, killed by the sword. The world was not worthy of these Judahites. That's Judah's legacy. Because he came clean. Because he took off the disguise and said, she is righteous, not me. The communion table is set this morning. The text says that this is a feast. The communion is a feast. It's the Lord's feast. Sorry, we don't have all the food to show what a feast it's supposed to be. But we have the things that represent the great feast it is. And our text says that Jesus feasted with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. He feasted with the Tamars and the Judas today. Unless you see yourself as a Judah or a Tamar. Refrain. His blood was broken. His body was broken. His blood was given to sinners. His feast is for sinners. Let's eat. Let's pray. God, this morning, with the table being set, I have to believe in a room this size that there are many here today who are maybe emotionally wounded. Some are feeling damaged. Some are feeling kicked to the curb. Some may be enslaved to a stronghold right now, whether it be eating or perfection or pornography. Some are just flat out living a lie. God, we need breakthrough. Pretz, break in. Break out your grace and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.